a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, all right, let's get this thing going. Welcome to the show. I hope you had a great weekend. It's good to be back. Had a little traveling. Yes, yes, I'm probably, hopefully I'm not confessing to a crime here, but I uh, drove to Idaho and had a pre-Thanksgiving meal with my mom. Took uh, three of my kids with me. No, just two of them. Sorry. I, had, I, had, I lost count there. Anyway, uh, it, was a, it was a great time. And, you know, here's the crazy thing about it. You know, there, a lot of really well-meaning people were like, well, now, you know, be careful. You don't want to go taking, you know, some kind of disease to your mom. And I get it. In a time of pandemic, everybody is so, so concerned about, you know, I don't want to be unwittingly spreading the disease. Even if I'm not showing symptoms, I worry that I might be one, you know, who's carrying it. And I have those concerns too. And at the same time, as I mentioned last week, I also have this very strong realization that uh, the clock is running for all of us. My mom's in her mid-80s. I, uh, I got looking back and just uh, remembering my grandparents who, who passed away. And they, they both passed away in their, their mid-80s. And my point is simply this. I don't want to sound you know macabre to, to be saying, oh, yeah, so obviously she's knocking on death's door. I don't think that's the case, but my point is there are some things you just don't want to leave postponed. Well, we'll wait for a better time. There'll be a better time. There's always next year. You don't know that. I don't know that. And I'll tell you, the joy on her face when we walked in the door and uh, just the happiness that I felt from her as we broke bread with her and my my boys helped her with uh, a couple of different uh, you know tasks around the house, I just... It was the right thing to do, and yet I'm not going to deny that uh, there there was uh, any risk in it. There there was risk, absolutely. But you face risk every day, and all I'm all I'm suggesting is, it felt really good to to be with this woman who has been alone for most of this year. She's actually been alone for about thirty years because it's been thirty years since my dad passed away. But she, you know, really has been isolated this year, and I know this is the case for a lot of people. And so I'm not going to insist, you know, you need to just throw caution to the wind and go do your own Thanksgiving thing. But I am going to suggest that you're the one who is best positioned to make that kind of decision. It was crazy on our drive up, driving through Salt Lake City. We passed electronic billboard after electronic billboard. Doctors need your help. Stay home. You know, wear a mask, all this kind of stuff. I just really get the sense that, uh, man... The, the, the propaganda is so thick. And some of it may be very well-intentioned. Some of it may actually be based on fact. But a lot of it just has the real of, you know, we are trying to get you to comply and using every trick in the book to make it happen. It takes conscious effort. It takes real effort to resist that kind of stuff. And all I'm saying here is, I think it's worth it. Whatever risk we undertook, you know, I think the travel was probably the riskiest part of all, but um, whatever risk we undertook, I think was absolutely worth it. 
in the sense that it gave us a chance to be with family and to connect with someone who really needed some company. And I'm glad I'm glad we did it. I wouldn't change a thing. All right. Having said that, welcome to the show. We have a lot to talk about today. I want to start to, by paying a tribute or at least uh, recognizing Paul Rosenberg. This man is a marvelous writer, and I'm trying to remember, I think it was back in 2012, I want to say 2012, 2013, when I first became acquainted with uh, Paul Rosenberg's writings. Somebody pointed me to an article that he had written, and then I subscribed to his emails on his website, Free Man's Perspective. But he has this incredible gift for being able to take complex issues and to distill them down to the essential truths at stake. I've, I've seen very few people who can state things more clearly and more succinctly than Paul Rosenberg. And I've especially been enjoying his uh, ongoing series of essays about how to recognize and how to counter logical fallacies. Because this is a big part of thinking clearly and independently is learning how to recognize when, you know, the person you're discussing things with is using um, a, a fallacy to try to win an argument by either intimidating you or otherwise using rhetorical trickery to make their case. So this is, uh, this is the fallacy of the loaded question. And we've all heard this before, but it's an attempt to win an argument by starting it with a question or a statement that contains a false or misleading assumption. And the most famous example of this is, have you stopped beating your wife? Because no matter how you answer, if you say yes or no, you're still admitting that you've beaten her in the past. That's presupposed by the question itself. So how do you answer a question like this? And by the way, journalists are great at asking trick bag questions like that. Paul Rosenberg says, so this fallacy is really just a dirty trick, although it's usually wrapped in something like justice-seeking. He says, most uses of this fallacy, however, aren't so obvious. And here's another one you've heard a lot over the last 20 years. Well, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to worry about. Think about what's assumed in that starting position. That it's right or normal for somebody to point a gun at you, to judge you according to their rules, and then shoot or not shoot, depending on whether you do as they wish. And then he states it another way, just for clarity. The statement says that you won't be hurt if you obey a person who claims the right to watch every move you make and who begins the interaction with a weapon pointed at you. That's what's implied by this question. And it becomes clear when we consider that it's asked by, or when we consider that it's asked by or in support of government, a government that is spying on you and is eager to destroy terrorists. Every bit of that is implied in the opening statement. Well, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. Now, he says, before we get too far, let's be clear about the legitimate use of if you have nothing to hide. Because in commercial or contractual interactions, being transparent may be something agreed upon by the parties. And in those cases, hiding relevant information really may be unethical or evidence of bad dealing. But he says, this is yet another reason to remember that when judging, we need to look at the whole situation and not just at the rules. Latching upon a rule to bypass reality, he says, is in a very real sense a type of idolatry, a desire for a handy, accessible tool that will save us from having to deal with our very complex world. So to understand how this, uh, this trick works, the loaded question, he says, let's deconstruct the nothing to hide slogan. 
and we start by considering the implications of the words if you have nothing to hide. First of all, it's an accusation implying that your hesitance is caused by your engagement in evil. In evil rather. Secondly, it's a threat to turn you into the authorities. And thirdly, it implies that the entity you're hiding from is supremely righteous and morally superior. Now, Paul Rosenberg says what we see here is multiple layers of applied fear. Fear that people will think you're evil, that power will hurt you, or that you're morally inferior. And this fear is delivered, delivered rather indirectly by implication. But that doesn't make it less powerful. If you've ever been on the target side of this saying, you've almost certainly felt it. Fear cuts and intimidates. It's an attack on your mind and will. He says, when you feel fear being shot at you, the odds are very high that the implications are, that are being made are flatly false. For example, the authority fear shooters want you to feel morally inferior to are almost always governments, a group that nearly everyone, including the fear shooters, complains about dailies. Daily, rather. By any objective standard, governments are morally worse than the average working person. So he says the most effective versions of this trick also rely on unexpected delivery. By thinking that you're having an honest conversation, you're already set up for an ambush. And the other party, the accuser, can turn and throw a barrage that you didn't see coming. And unless you're well experienced in such things, the shock of it will take you a few seconds to recover from. During those few seconds, it will appear to everyone else that you've lost, and you probably feel like you've lost. The confusion of it all will probably make whatever comments you make seem lame. So the way to keep out of this trap is not to quickly answer the question, but to begin by finding the false assumption behind it. But that takes time. And so until you're comfortable handling this fallacy, and when combined with fear, we might as well be honest and call them attacks, what you really need is to buy time for yourself. This is really solid advice, and I say this as someone who has been in the thick of many a discussion where this has been wielded as a weapon. i got to take a quick break, but we're going to come back, and Paul Rosenberg gives a beautiful example of how to turn the tables or how to at least counter that loaded question, well, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. And it starts by going after the question itself. This is really marvelous stuff, and I hope you find it helpful and useful in your life. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. We are going to jump right back into this article from Paul Rosenberg about how to deal with the fallacy of the loaded question. Someone says, have you stopped beating your wife? Or, well, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. And he says, you know, the way out of this trap is not to quickly answer the question because, first of all, you're going to feel shocked that someone has attacked you like this. And that, that shock usually means you're, you're sitting there for a moment, blinking your eyes, going, what? When did this turn like that? It's, it's an ambush. So he says it would be very useful to get into the habit of saying, wait, I want to understand precisely what you're saying here. 
That puts the brakes on the situation, gives you a chance to take a deep breath and back up to the beginning. And it also changes the emotional dynamic of the situation, not just for you, but for any observers or for your attacker. Wait, I want to understand precisely what you're saying here. Once you've created that little bit of space, you can continue. So you're saying that as long as I'm not doing evil, I should be happy about being spied upon? And see, at that point, the conversation just turned nearly 180 degrees. Now, he says, bear in mind that almost any attack of this type will be full of dishonesty. He says, I don't think I've ever seen an exception. If it wasn't, they wouldn't need to attack you. They could just explain their better idea to you. He says, the perfect answer to the question, have you stopped beating your wife, is, I've never beaten my wife, and it's malicious of you to frame a question in such an accusatory, dishonest way. But he says, then again, that requires either a lot of experience or some time to recover from the blow and think it through. The direct answer to the nothing-to-hide statement would be something along these lines. I don't accept you or the people you're threatening me with as legitimate judges of my action. You have no right to stand over me and pronounce judgment upon me. Yeah, I think that would pretty much do the trick. (laughs) Pretty good stuff. Again, I'll have a link to this article in the show notes, which you can find at thebrianheidshow.com. Paul Rosenberg uh, working his way through some of the big logical fallacies that uh, I think we have to deal with you know, on a day-to-day basis. If, if you are active in discussing truth, that doesn't mean arguing online necessarily, but it, it could take that form or it could just be you know, having a conversation with a family member or a coworker. These are really good things to know. And remember, the goal here is not to dominate every person that you interact with, right? The goal here is to be able to speak the truth and to do it in such a way that uh, that the people you're speaking to, whether they be innocent bystanders who are just watching the exchange or the actual person you're conversing with, has something worth considering. You may not change their mind, and that's okay. But at the very least, I, I consider, you know, the... What I consider a really good productive discussion isn't necessarily one that changes someone's mind. It's not one where, well, we have a clear winner and a clear loser as a result of this exchange. It's one where both parties walk away with a broader understanding than they brought to the discussion. In other words, your vantage point has been expanded, whether you agree or not. At the very least, you understand there is another way to look at this You'll certainly understand if there's weakness in your own arguments. That's a good thing, right? But it's not about crushing your enemies, seeing them driven before you, and hearing the lamentation of their women. That's not the point. You just want to communicate truth and do it in a way that uh, if there is a a desire on the part of whomever you're talking with to to, uh, acquire further truth, plant the seed and give them a chance to come to it on their own terms. All right, speaking of truth, I want to talk about bias in mass media. It is nothing new. It's been going on for a long, long time. I personally have uh, have been extremely aware of it for about the last 30 years. Anybody who's been paying attention will recognize that uh, the bias in media, it's real, and you don't have to subscribe to it. It's a conspiracy. It's, It's just... There's a consensus. And when you consider that many of the the mass media journalists and the anchors and whatnot, the spin meisters, if you will, they are very well paid. They are very, very skilled. 
but they also run in a very closed circle, meaning they kind of have their own echo chamber, and they really can't believe that out here in flyover country, there are people who think differently than they do. Probably the best case in point of this was the reaction to the 2016 election. Don't mean to dredge up any painful memories here, but do you recall how the press went on and on and on about what an awful individual Donald Trump is and how nobody should elect him and how it doesn't really matter because Hillary's got this thing in the bag. And on they went for months and months, right up until the moment that Trump was elected, at which point they melted down. How could how did this not turn out the way that we said it would? They believe in word magic. If we say something, why, well, it has to be so. Yes, they don't recognize many of them that uh, they are mere mortals themselves even though they may have some prominence among, you know, other human beings. What's astonishing today is the amount of open deception and gaslighting we're seeing where mass media will deny reality with a straight face. I'll give you an example. Last week I shared with you John Miltimore's article about the Denmark face mask study. And this was not a study meant to debunk debunk once and for all whether wearing face masks is foolishness or whether it's the the panacea that will solve the, the COVID problem. It was simply a medical study undertaken to see how will this affect the transmission of the virus. And the results were pretty simple in that it found that whether you wore a mask or not, people still got the virus. But it's so funny to see the the media, New York Times among others, reporting this and saying, well, well, this proves that what they needed was more masks. It didn't prove any such thing. The, The facts are very clear in the study itself. But mass media would lie to our faces and tell us this is what it really said. And they they get upset. If someone says, hey, that's that's a load of horse apples. That's that's not even close to the truth. And then, of course, they're backed by social media, which attempts to filter any attempts to challenge the narrative. With the various fact checker pops up or just outright, we've removed your post because it discusses something that we don't want discussed. I'm posting an article. This is in the show notes, and I would encourage you to take a look at it. This was published earlier today by Dr. Joseph Mercola, and it's it's a review of Cheryl Atkinson's latest book, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. This book is uh, set for release actually uh, tomorrow. And in this book, Cheryl Atkinson, who herself is a very well-recognized journalist, addresses one of the most pressing issues of our time, media bias and the deterioration of objective journalism. That's a topic on which she has firsthand experience. She's been a former anchor at uh, CNN and CBS News. Now she produces her own Sunday television news program, Full Measure, as well as two podcasts, Full Measure After Hours and the Sherilyn Atkinson podcast, in which she covers the kinds of stories that the mainstream news no longer covers. Now, Dr. Mercola says, look, propaganda through media isn't a new thing. Starting in the late 1940s, the CIA ran a well-documented, but at the time covert program called Operation Mockingbird in which they recruited journalists or assets to spread propaganda. News slanted in one way or another, and while the program is always referred to in the past tense, as it's said to have ended in the 1970s, the the evidence suggests that it never really stopped. 
And by the way, for more evidence of this, I just I saw an exchange on Twitter over the weekend. Glenn Greenwald was being called out for for pointing out that NBC News, for instance, was home to many of those CIA um, sponsored journalists. And people were like, you're endangering journalists all over the world whenever you equate them with the CIA. How irresponsible, how despicable that you would do such a thing. To which Glenn responded with a headline uh, that, that showed, uh, what's his name? Uh, oh, it's not James Clapper. Crud. I can't remember the guy's name. I'm going to have to look it up. But it was uh, one of the former CIA chiefs, Brennan, that's who, is now a C- a, an NBC contributor. But hey, there's no connection between the CIA and NBC, right? They're not in bed together or anything, right? Yeah, right. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. We're talking about bias in the media, one of my favorite subjects. Only because I think as the bias becomes more apparent... I can feel my own job security surging. Not because uh, I'm all that in a bag of chips, but just, just simply because I happen to have an answer to that uh, mainstream media bias. And it's, it's what I've been spending the last couple of years doing, and that is learning how to and actually building platforms which bypass mainstream media. I don't watch mass media anymore. I can't tell you the last time that I had on Fox News or CNN, I don't even have broadcast television in my home because even the local TV stations are eaten up with this bias. And you know, you may say, well, Brian, then that makes you a very poorly informed person and you are certainly entitled to your opinion. I don't necessarily consider myself to be a well-informed person, but uh, I would say anybody who has given me the fair shake of listening to my program for any length of time would at least have to concede, I'm not exactly hiding out in a cave with my eyes shut and my hands over my ears. I just have learned to find alternative ways to ascertain what's happening in the world. And I don't need it to come through some mainstream source that, uh, you know, is, is going to lie to me and frustrate me. So I've got this article linked in the show notes. I I hope you'll take a look at it. It's from Dr. Joseph Mercola, and it's about uh, Cheryl Atkinson on media bias. Her book should drop tomorrow, and uh, she talks about how big industry influences the news, the big tech, how they are master manipulators of minds, and even presidential treatment takes on new meaning. It's a phenomenal article. She talks about how they massage the COVID-19 <clears throat> messages. And, and this is where we're actually going to jump off next because this is, this is probably one of the biggest sources of frustration to me is how media approaches COVID-19. I think that uh, there's great deception, which does not mean that, oh, you must be a COVID truther, huh? You think it's a big fake pandemic. I think there's a real virus out there. But I also think that uh, you've got media, social media, as well as mass media, openly censoring any dissenting views about the virus, its origin, the treatment, the narrative of what should be done. Even well-respected doctors and scientists have found themselves 
booted out the door for speaking against the desired directive narrated by the World Health Organization. So I want to share with you this article from Jeffrey A. Tucker about the blizzard of bogus journalism on COVID. He says the hunt and kill COVID cases or the game of hunt and kill COVID cases has reached peak absurdity. And this is especially in media culture. Take a look, he says, at supermarkets are the most common place to catch COVID. That's according to a, an article that was uh, you know, published. I, I can't remember who, who published it uh, first, but um, basically that was the claim. Yeah, well, this is, this is where the, the disease is spreading which is a story that was assembled that was on a study rather assembled by the Public Health England group as well as from the NHS Test and Trace app. Here's the conclusion. In the 6 days of November that they studied of those who tested positive it was found 18.3% had visited a supermarket. Now keep in mind what that headline is communicating to the readers or to the viewers. Oh my gosh. If I go to the supermarket, I'm likely to get COVID. But Jeff Tucker says, look, if the alarm bells didn't go off with that one, you didn't pay attention to seventh grade science. Because if the app had also included showering, eating, and breathing, it might have found a 100% correlation. Yes, the people who tested positive probably did shop, as do most people. But that doesn't mean shopping gives you COVID, and it certainly doesn't mean that shopping kills you. And Jeff Tucker says, even if shopping is a way to get COVID, this is a very widespread, mostly mild virus for 99.8% of the population with an infection fatality rate as low as 0.05% for those under 70. Competent infectious disease experts have said multiple times that test, track, and isolate strategies are almost useless for controlling viruses such as this. In fact, this story slash study was so poor and so absurd it was too much even for Isabel Oliver, director of the National Infection Service at Public Health England. She sent out this note that said, quote, Suggestions that supermarkets are causing COVID-19 to spread are inaccurate. Common exposure data does not prove where people are contracting COVID-19. It simply shows where people who have tested positive have been in the days leading up to their test, and it's used to help identify possible outbreaks. And Jeffrey Tucker says, Thank you. One down, a thousand to go. And then the New York Times pulled a mighty fast one with this piece. States that imposed few restrictions now have the worst outbreaks. Now, he says that would be huge news if true, because it would imply not only that lockdowns save lives, which no serious study has thus far been able to document, but also that granting people basic freedoms are the reason for bad health outcomes, which is an astonishing claim on its own. He says the piece put together by two graphic artists and seemingly very science-like speaks of outbreaks, which vaguely sounds terrible, packed with mortality. And it's odd because anyone can look at the data and see that New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and Connecticut lead the way with deaths per million, mostly owing to the fatalities in long-term care facilities. These were the states that locked down the hardest and the longest, and in fact, they're locking down again. Deaths per million in states like South Dakota are still low on the list. So how in the world can the New York Times claim that states that did not lock down somehow have the worst outbreaks? Well, he says that claim hinges entirely on a trivial discovery. Some clever someone discovered that if you reflow data by cases per million instead of deaths per million, 
you get an opposite result. The reasons, number one, when the Northeast experienced the height of the pandemic, there was very little testing going on, so the outbreak was not documented even as deaths grew and grew. Number two, by the time the virus reached the Midwest, tests were widely available. And number three, the testing mania grew and grew to the point that the non-vulnerable are being tested like crazy, generating high positives in small population areas. But by focusing on the word outbreak, he says the Times can cleverly obscure the difference between a positive PCR result, rather, including many false positives and perhaps half or more asymptomatic cases, and a severe outcome from catching the virus. In other words, the Times has documented an outbreak of mostly non-sick people in low population areas. Now, he says there are hundreds of ways to look at COVID-19. The Times picked one metric, the one metric, at least the, the least valuable one for actually discerning whether and what to what extent people are sick in order to generate the result that they wanted which was namely that open states look as bad as possible. The result is a chart that massively misrepresents any existing reality because it makes the worst states look like great ones and the best ones look terrible. He says the visual alone is constructed to make it look as if open states are bleeding uncontrollably. And by the way, he has the graphic here and it, do, it looks terrifying. It's even in blood red to you know, further you know, stoke those fears. But Jeffrey Tucker says, how many readers will even know this? Very few, he suspects. What's more amazing is the Times itself already debunked the entire case-demic back in September. Quote, some of the nation's leading public health experts are raising a new concern in the endless debate over coronavirus testing in the United States. The standard tests are diagnosing huge numbers of people who may be carrying relatively insignificant amounts of the virus. Most of these people are not likely to be contagious and identifying them may contribute to bottlenecks that prevent those who are contagious from being found in time. In three sets of testing data that include cycle thresholds compiled by officials in Massachusetts, New York, and Nevada, up to 90% of people testing positive carried barely any virus, a review by the Times found. End quote. And Jeff Tucker says, all of which makes one wonder. What precisely is going on in th this relationship between cases and severe outcomes? The COVID tracking project generates the following chart. Cases are in blue while deaths are in red. By gosh, those cases, they are definitely up. Deaths, however, barely register. They are so low. They have to, one is in blue, one is in red. Wow. Blue is a mountain. Red is barely a visible line along the bottom of that mountain. But he says, despite this story and these data, the graphic artist at the Times got to work generating a highly misleading presentation that leads to one conclusion. More lockdowns. Now, there's more to this article. Again, I highly recommend it. It is found in the show notes, which you can access at the thebrianhideshow.com. The, the visuals on this are worth the time of reading the article, even if you feel like, well, I'm not particularly scientific-minded. Trust me, you can see this and you can see for yourself. Your own eyes will show you that there's something wonky with the way this information is being presented. It's being presented in a, in a fashion that's calculated to scare us, which I presume is to get us to submit. Take a look.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Just one final thought on this article from Jeffrey A. Tucker. A bl- the blizzard of bogus journalism on COVID. Yeah, I have a bone to pick with much of journalism, but especially on this, because it appears that really there is no relationship at all and never has been between lockdowns and lives saved, which means all of the financial and emotional destruction going on in the name of trying to save us from this virus was unnecessary. And Jeff Tucker concludes by saying, look, it's all become too much. The world is being seriously misled by major media organs. The politicians are continuing to panic and impose draconian controls fully nine months into this, despite mountains of evidence of the real harm the lockdowns are causing everyone. And he concludes by saying, if you haven't lost faith in politicians and major media at this point, you have paid no attention to what they've been doing for the better part of this catastrophic year. Dang. Now that brings us to the courage to stand up to these authorities. I don't know if you saw this over the weekend. Um, There was, uh, I don't know what the business was, somewhere in Buffalo, New York. But here's a health inspector with a couple of sheriff's deputies on hand, and they're there to inspect and, you know, to, uh, to levy fines and otherwise threaten. And this business owner finally just said, enough. This is private property. You all need to remove yourselves now. Get out now. Leave. Come back with a warrant if you have a warrant. And they ultimately had to leave. They didn't have a warrant. I mean, they blustered. They huffed and puffed and threatened to, you know, levy fines. But they had to leave. And it's this is uncomfortable. None of us really wants to be in a confrontation, right? Especially with people standing there with guns. I know friends who uh, who have businesses who have taken to where they just simply keep the doors locked. And this is, you know, obviously they're not depending on retail traffic walking through their doors. But they, they, they keep their doors locked. Their employees are instructed. Nobody gets in without first uh, we ascertain who they are and what they want. And that's going to frustrate some health officials who are there to, you know, mm-hmm, I mean, with this clipboard and these rules, I'm going to enforce the compliance. Well... That resistance is growing. I don't know if you heard about what happened with the Waffle House, too, but they've taken a stand against lockdowns. John Miltimore has an excellent piece on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. Now, the title is Waffle Waffle House's Stand Against Lockdowns is Exactly What America Needs. Almost. And here's the qualifier. Waffle House CEO Walt Emer's stance against lockdowns is courageous, but John Miltimore says ultimately bolder action may be required to save businesses from the pernicious effects of lockdowns. He says, Walt Emer, the CEO of Waffle House, didn't mince words when he explained his biggest problem with economic lockdowns stemming from the COVID-19 pandemic. Emer recently told Business Insider, none of the people who make the decisions to shut down businesses and impact people's livelihoods ever have their own livelihood impacted. I happen to agree with that. No, Miltimore says, look, there's clearly some hyperbole in the statement. After all, everyone is impacted to some degree by the lockdowns, but Emer's larger point is correct. The people shutting down the economy are not being affected by lockdowns to the same extent that others are. 
I mean, that's the beauty of drawing a taxpayer-funded paycheck, right? Those taxpayers are always going to be good to pay you because they have to. Miltimore says when the coronavirus swept across America earlier this spring, Waffle House, which has locations in 25 states, was forced to shut down some 700 restaurants across the country. This put roughly 28,000 hourly Waffle House employees out of work who became part of the 26.5 million Americans filing for unemployment that month. The story of these workers underscores an overlooked reality of the pandemic, and that is lower-income Americans are being harmed the most by these lockdowns. Pew Research studies show that Hispanic women, immigrants, young people, and individuals with less education have been the most likely to lose jobs and the least likely to save income during the pandemic. They've also been the most likely by far to say that they've struggled to pay rent or bills. And he's got a very powerful chart here that demonstrates this. Emer says many people don't seem to realize the harm that's being done to the people who can least afford it. In his interview, Emer said, a lockdown is going to put a lot of people out of work. It's really not about the business, it's about the people. These people have jobs, they have livelihoods, they need to take care of their families. Now it's safe to say the politicians ordering these lockdowns have not suffered the same way. For starters, they still have their jobs, but it's also more than that. John Miltimore says the reality is that many politicians have probably seen their wealth increase. The lockdowns have been hell on Main Street, but great for Wall Street. Last week, the Dow Jones Industrial Average hit an all-time high, in large part because so many corporations have seen their competition sidelined, increasing their market share. But he says the inequities of the pandemic go beyond wealth. Time and again, the pandemic has shown that politicians have not been subjected to the rules and regulations they pass in the same way that everyday Americans have. They can make a quick phone call to buy jewelry at stores that are officially closed, That's what New Mexico Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham did back in April. Or they can arrange an appointment with a stylist while salons are closed because those businesses are not essential, unless you appear on TV, in which case they are very essential, as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Chicago Mayor uh, Lori Lightfoot did. Or Philadelphia Mayor Jim Kenney, they can uh, ban indoor dining like he did while sneaking out for a bite to eat on the sly. Now, these actions might earn lawmakers some bad press, but that pales in comparison to what restaurants have endured during the pandemic. Eateries like Waffle House have been among the industry's hardest hit by the lockdowns. Now, many don't see eating out as an essential activity till a close friend's birthday comes up, that is. Mayor Newsom, we're looking your direction, and research has shown that eating out, like gyms, poses a greater risk of spreading the virus than other activities. So Miltimore says it's certainly true that some activities are going to pose greater risks than others. But the reality is that only individuals can determine how much of a risk is worth taking to engage in a given activity. He's got a link to a great Milton Friedman video where he's explaining this to a student. But this is a truth that lawmakers too often ignore. John Miltimore says when Gavin Newsom broke his own COVID-19 dining restrictions, to enjoy dinner with friends, he knew there was a risk he might contract the virus. But he determined that the risk was worth the value of a night out. When Bill de Blasio went to the gym to work out while other New Yorkers were forbidden to do so, he knew there was risk. But he similarly determined the risk was worth the rewards of exercise. Now John Miltimore says, to be clear, I'm not saying Newsom and de Blasio should not do these things because they come with risks. 
He says, I'm saying everyone should be able to determine how much risk they're willing to take to engage in a given activity. And this is how Emer is approaching his work at Waffle House. He's not denying that there are risks to dining out or going to work. He's saying those risks need to be balanced against the damage being done from lockdowns. Emer added, people making the decisions are not paying the same price that workers in this country are paying. He said, I'm not going to work in an unsafe environment. I'm not going to let our folks work in an unsafe environment. John Miltimore says, when he says he works side by side with folks, Emer isn't being metaphorical. When Business Insider interviewed the Waffle House CEO, he was in the back of one of the chain's Memphis locations wearing a polo uniform like the workers. He doesn't sit on Zoom calls all day talking to managers at locations, but visits four to seven employees every day to work shoulder to shoulder with the employees who are delivering a service to customers. Emer said the true way to solve a crisis is to go stand in the middle of it and figure out how to take care of people and figure out how to help put things back together. That doesn't change regardless of what the crisis is. Now, John Miltimore says this may sound reckless to some people, but it's a sign of clear leadership. And it also reveals a basic economic reality that many of today's decision makers often forget. Najeri Boss, Waffle House's public relations manager, told Business Insider back in April, everyone does not have the ability to work from home. And John Miltimore says, unlike many of us, Restaurant workers and owners don't have that luxury. These jobs and eateries may matter little to the decision makers, but the National Restaurant Association points out countless livelihoods are at stake because of the aggressive measures lawmakers are taking to slow the spread of the virus. So Emer's stance against lockdowns may be courageous, but John Miltimore says ultimately bolder action may be required to save businesses from the pernicious effects of lockdowns. Adhering to government orders that force businesses to close their doors might seem like the only sensible action to take, but there's another way, as Elon Musk has shown. In May, the Tesla founder simply refused to adhere to a government order forcing Tesla's car plant in Fremont, California, to remain closed. Do you remember this? Do you remember Elon Musk tweeting, Tesla's starting production, restarting production today against Alameda County rules. I will be on the line with everyone else. If anyone is arrested, I ask that it only be me. So let's uh, keep that opposition going, but, re- but understand, it may require more than words to break the lockdown spell. It may take peaceful but assertive action. This is The Brian Hyde Show.